seconds flat. Give me up. Put it down, put it This is the second flat running podcast. Hello again, friends, and welcome to mile one hundred and fourteen of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. It's so good to be back with you. My dear friend Phil is in studio tonight. Welcome back. It's been a while. It's, it's good to be back with you, Travis. Yeah, I've it's been, been on, too long. I've been on the interview circuit. You have been. I lately. understand. I'll take a back seat to Dick Beardsley. That's. I tell you what, if you can be a 1B to Dick Beardsley, that's not a bad place in life, yeah. is it? How great was he, man? Oh, that was a great interview. No, you've had a good run the past couple weeks. Well, I appreciate that. I couldn't do it without you. <laughs> we are looking forward to diving into a recently published article. came out the first of the month in the Journal of Sports Medicine entitled, The Training Characteristics of World-Class Distance Runners. An Integration of Scientific Literature and Results-Proven Practice. It's by a group of authors. Probably the most famous among the group is Steven Seiler, exercise physiologist who we have mentioned here before. Yeah. Um, known for his case studies of endurance athletes. And this article provides a fascinating synthesis of what the lab research tells us produces great runners and what the best runners in the world are actually doing in practice. Well, and I was excited about this one, too, because a lot of his stuff has been just with endurance sports in general. Yes. And that covers everything from, I think he's done a lot of work with rowers, with cross-country skiers. Um, Cyclists. Yeah. So a lot of non-impact stuff. And yep. those principles, for the most part, translate. But here, we're able to kind of get a little bit more insight to how that relates to just runners specifically. Yeah, the, those ground contact forces yeah. are not translatable from those other sports. Yep. Even if perhaps the aerobic aspects of those endeavors are. Yeah. Our goal in turn here is to raise some questions about the article, as well as discuss how you can apply these principles to your training. The timing here also syncs well with the recent release of Ben Rosario and Matt Fitzgerald's new book. Have you seen this? Film? Yeah, I haven't seen, I haven't read it, but I listened to the podcast. I think Mario Frioli had them yeah, they, on. Yeah, they run Morning Shakeout. Yeah, yeah, they had a really good discussion. Yeah, so the new book is Run Like a Pro, in which they analyze how Ben adapted the Hoka NAZ Elite training that they use for their professionals yep. to help Matt, who stayed with them, lived with them, trained with them, Reach a Marathon PR yeah. a few years back. Rosario and F Scott Fowle were co-authors on a great book called Inside a Marathon yep. from a couple years ago, where we see the elite perspective. And then this takes it and translates it and says, what can we take from that and apply to the average runner? Uh, so we'll break all of that down for you shortly. But first, speaking of Scott Fowle. Well, I was going to say, there's yeah. your transition right there. He had a day. <laughs> he had a good day. Uh, one of the deepest Boston marathons in history certainly lived up to the hype on Patriots Day Monday morning. It always does. Uh, that is well said. It does. With London moving its race to the fall, 
Many of the world's best were on the line in Hopkinton, and they treated us to a spectacular it event was a once good race. again. It yeah. was. The pro men took off first with CJ Albertson again blasting off the line and leading the way. He is fun to watch race. He looked like he had no idea what he was doing last year when he did that. Well, but he comes from a background where he has the ability to to go that kind of distance. So unlike last year, this time a small pack went with yeah. him, and so he probably had more actual impact on the race this year. Mm -hmm. Last year, everybody kind of thought, he's crazy, he's coming back to us. He did come back this year as well. Oh, and and he pushed it again later too, though. Yeah, still ran a good race. The group went with him. He made another move. And it led to a PR for him. Interesting character, interesting training plan. But Uh I do respect the... I know what's best for my chances here at Boston, yep. and I'm going to put it out there. Fellow Americans Elkanah Cabet and Mick Icafano hung on to that first group. It was exciting to see those guys in there. Yeah. yeah. But as has been the story so many times at Boston, it's the moves coming out of the Newton uh-huh. Hills that determine the champion. And so it was there that eventual winner Evans Chabet ripped a blistering 1355 5K. Whew. On the downhill, coming off of Heartbreak Hill and broke the field. Uh, We've said it here before. If you are patient, if you are disciplined, there is a chance to move out of Heartbreak with a long, steady, gradual downhill. The the finish is downhill. That is a a bit misleading. It is true, but you do get a... There's the kind of famous bump that you have to go over at the sit-go sign Mm -hmm. uh, that feels like a hill at that point. And then you come... The underpass that you have to go right. up as you make the last turns. But you're right. In some, that last 10K is downhill. Yeah. If you haven't been there before, though, it's so difficult it, it, to prep your body to make the move at that point. It's easy to say, and it makes sense. But what the, the course puts you through before <laughs> that makes it so difficult to actually execute. And for so many people... And I'll add the athletes we work with who are yeah. there. It, it's the third or fourth time before they really figure that out. And if you get there on the third or fourth time, or if you're really good and, and really patient and perhaps lucky the first or second time and get good weather, yeah, like we did this year, oh, and, a beautiful it, day. and it comes yeah. together, there's a chance for a good time. And Evans Chavette certainly put that up. Uh, Lawrence Torono was your runner up. He is always tough at Boston. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite racers. And then Scott Fobble was your top American. What, seventh place? Yeah, seventh overall. The now unsponsored Fobble ran a PB of 208.52. It's the burritos. It is the He's a big <laughs> burrito guy. He moved up from 22nd position at the halfway point with perfectly even splits for mm-hmm. the first and second half. Well, it was interesting, too. I'm, I'm sure you saw the interview he had after the race where he was, what, the first third of the race where he was in the lead pack and notice that those guys are running 206 pace mm-hmm. and you know for him wisely dropped back was thinking it was too hot for him but really stayed in for the for the rest of it and ran solid even splits but to me as well it's crazy that somebody's running that fast but that a 2 minute difference is such a noticeable feel for mm-hmm. them but that also that he had the discipline to back off and save his matches for later versus trying to hang into the pack that he he wasn't ready for this, to me, is an early application of the article we're going to discuss yeah. and what you can take that elites do yep. that you can do as well. So many of us, early in a marathon, spend the bullets. Yeah. We start shooting all our shots. And he recognized very early on, 
we're working on 206 pace. If those guys can do it, great. Let him go. Let's see what happens. And so many of them came back to him. Right. But he he understood. I'm sure Scott Fobble felt pretty decent at 5K, 10K into this. And that is the application that we all have to be better with is understanding that just because you feel good at that point doesn't mean you keep pressing. You have to just stay patient. And he understood his limitations and he was fantastic. As we said, unsponsored, Phil, let's get this guy a deal. Do South Coffee. (laughs) Are you listening? I think there's an opportunity there. That's a match made in heaven. So, well, once we cover the the women's race, I we're gonna come back to this unsponsored thing. I got a I got a question for you. Okay, okay, and I think I already I I have a feeling I already know the question, and I have my answer prepared. Okay, that's good. how well I know you oh, at this point. Excellent. Oh, co-host, be back here. life partners, it's a beautiful <laughs> thing. Uh, we said pre-race that Fobble might be primed for a bounce back, and also our American dark horse I mentioned, Reed Fisher. Yeah. Uh, certainly had a breakthrough performance. He notched a 210 high finish and continues his upward trajectory. He moved up consistently through the race to uh, maybe like fifth American, I yeah. think, ultimately at the end. Uh, since you brought up the women's race, let's go ahead and sure. pivot. It was Nell Rojas repeating as the top First American, American yeah. female. Uh, she was She's nearly, a strong runner. Uh, She's well, had a great couple years. And that strength, if you are familiar with her history, Mm -hmm. comes from a history in triathlon. Yeah. A history of a brief history in obstacle course racing as well. A background in strength training. You're right. She is a strong runner. Uh, She was nearly two minutes faster than her time last Mm -hmm. year. First American last year too, right? She was. Yeah. And she's unsponsored as well. Yeah. So there's another future due south athlete. (laughs) I say we need the listeners to head over to the Hampton Station location. Use the discount code uh-huh. SFPOD15 off all your purchases yep. and demand that Ryan at Due South starts doling out the sponsorship deals for these cats because <laughs> wouldn't that be a team? That would be fantastic. Due South, Rojas, Fobble, the whole thing. Give him in a second flat jersey. Oh, I love it. It was Paris Jeptricher of Kenya, the winner at both the Olympics and New York last year. Mm-hmm. Who won your women's race. That was an uh, exciting finish. Yeah, that was somewhat reminiscent of a Beardsley-Salazar yeah. duel in the sun late. Uh, from the 25-mile mark to the finish line, we had seven, yes, seven, Phil, lead changes. Yep. Before Jeptricher blasted away over the final quarter mile, she was victorious in a time of 2.21.01. I think that's second fastest women's time ever at Boston. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm not positive, but I think yeah, that's correct. Thanks for the support. Uh, congrats <laughs> to previous guest of the show, uh, Natasha Wodak, on her top 20 performance. Nice. And also, of course, to the many friends of the show who crossed that storied finish line on Monday morning slash afternoon, depending on what wave you were in. We're so excited for your tremendous accomplishment. Uh, And I hope that being in that atmosphere with those fans, regardless of the outcome of of your race, only serves to motivate you to get back and do it better and run other races and share that enjoyment and enthusiasm with all your family friends and and people you run with and it was it was fun to watch from home with with 
how well Boston, the I guess the Boston Athletic Association does their app where you can follow along and yeah. see how guys are. Oh, I'm tracking like 30 people coming along on this the course. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I was working with the app going like playing the TV broadcast uh-huh. from the phone in my pocket so that I can listen <laughs> to it and f- tracking all these guys and then went back and watched in more detail later. But yeah, they, they do an excellent job at, at the greatest marathon in the world. Yeah. So Phil, what was your so, unsponsored question? Yeah. So it's more of an observation and with Scott Fobble, I mean, he, he has had a solid career. You know, he, he left NAZ elite this past fall and gave a lot of credit to his former coach in that yeah. group. Uh, but I think from reading his interviews, it sounds like he just was ready for a change, Mm -hmm. but elected to go from what was probably a pretty secure situation. I imagine the sponsorship deal is pretty lucrative to go basically chuck it all and go unsponsored. Yeah. And then Noah Rojas on the, on the women's side, uh, you know, had, was it Asics or Adidas that she was with? I had a, had a solid deal with them, but then as well, decided to forego that deal so that she wouldn't have to race in their shoes. I guess I think it's more just a state of professional running at this point. But to me, it's frustrating that somebody of that caliber is having to give up a sponsorship deal to race in a shoe that they think is a little bit superior, but also that because of how those sponsorships are put together, that they're restricted from you know putting together a clothing sponsorship or a nutrition sponsorship as well. Um, That may be the next step potentially for some of these athletes is to go to the complimentary deals and allow you to use your footwear of choice. Uh, If you listen to Fobble, he did a really good interview on uh, Running Rivals podcast probably three, four weeks ago. Okay. Uh, Broke down some of the training that that move from Flagstaff to Boulder Mm -hmm. to being unsponsored. He was pretty transparent in saying, I I want and need a sponsorship. I can't continue to do this without the money. Perhaps a bigger issue, Phil, um, is the structure of the contracts. One is the lack of transparency Mm -hmm. in knowing what other guys are getting. Well, they all have non-disclosure agreements, so nobody has an idea. The NDAs are a huge obstacle in... One, creating a more level playing field for these professionals to to earn a living. And two, in my opinion, to amplify the sport. Right. I think it holds us back. You don't see this in football and basketball and baseball. They promote these deals. Yeah. It draws attention of prospective athletes. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a critical limiting factor. I don't know as much if this is about a great imbalance in shoes. Right. Uh, you choose what you feel works best for you. That might not be the same for everyone, but hey, Adidas had a pretty good day yeah. at Boston. It wasn't all Nike guys right. and Nike women winning these races. Uh, but we do generally see these unsponsored athletes having success. Uh, let's take Jake Riley as yeah. an example. Yeah who went out at the trials, made the Olympic team, and I know he's had health issues since, but in somewhat of a one-off in the Nike shoe, Mm -hmm. and then signs a deal with On, and has been in their super shoe, and it's probably not a reflection of the shoe that he hasn't had the same success, but you are then limited, and... We know at times also, though, in the past, when these brands didn't have a competitive shoe... Right. They could rebatch something. That, that is exactly yeah. right. You covered up a, a vapor fly uh-huh. and just made it look plain and blank yep. and ran in it. I don't have an answer. But I, I, I think I, it's just between the two of them you know, having such great days, but 
and maybe more it's just the state of professional American distance running. That... Yeah, that, that's what it's a reflection on to me. Uh, to go back to my first point, wouldn't it be great to see Fobble make a deal with Lululemon? Right. He wore their he singlet, wore their top. Yeah. right? That perhaps they can be supportive in a way like we've seen brands like Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the women's uh, Wazelle? Yeah. The women's yep. apparel group. They, they support athletes. Perhaps you can make enough there to have the freedom to do the other things you want to do. And, yeah. and it also limits the training groups you can be in and where you can train and when you sign on with these groups. And Well, that's, I think that's pretty interesting in terms of what these teams are doing as well, that you aren't so much seeing these one-off athletes. That They're all coming, not all of them, but they're, a lot of them are coming out of these big groups. Mm-hmm. But that's a huge swing of the pendulum from yeah. where we were in this country 20 years ago. Yeah, we can true. thank those groups for elevating us back again on the global stage. Yep. Uh, we're seeing it particularly on the track. But also, if you look at women's marathoning in mm-hmm. recent years, we, we've been incredibly successful. And we've had a, a higher level of men's marathoning with our times that we're hitting, our marks right. we're hitting. We haven't won as many big races, but those groups are really responsible Absolutely. if we're going to go back to Mammoth Lakes and we're going to go to Brooks Hansen and, and those groups from 20 years ago that yeah. helped reestablish us on the global scene. All right, Phil, let's turn to the past seven days of sure. our training We're going to talk quickly. training weeks now? Yeah. You want to go first? So what are we doing? Thursday to Thursday? We're, we're on Friday to Thursday, seven ah, days, Friday okay. to Thursday. So last Friday was 45 minutes, um, which this wasn't totally on the schedule, but was a lap up Paris Mountain. I know. I liked how you snuck that in because it was <laughs> the right amount of time. Don't think I didn't notice it. I, I figured you would. It's okay. Um, it was a beautiful day up the mountain. Yeah, I bet it was. Um, I had the day off, so I got to go a little bit later. So there's All daylight right, the whole way. That's enough. Let's move on we, to Saturday. Yeah, you disappointed to me it. enough already. <laughs> no, it's okay. In, this is a great point of, we've talked about it before, know what you enjoy, know what you love. Yeah. I then made adjustments accordingly in what we did moving forward from that. It's okay. Yeah. Sometimes you go off the plane a little bit, just communicate and yep. figure it out. Saturday was, Saturday was a tough one. Um, it was two and a half hours. Uh, it was solo. It was rainy. So I ended up getting in about 19 miles. Um, still had a little bit of soreness from Ville to Ville. The yeah, so you ran the relay. Week. You yeah. haven't been on to talk about that, but we did mention it in Brad's interview that he yep. ran it as well. You had two legs on that relay. Yeah. So, so the legs were still a little, a little bit sore, but you know, yeah. with where that was put, you know, I, as of you know, this coming Saturday, I'll be three weeks out from a marathon. Oh, um, you should tell your coach up that. Quick. He's not ready for that. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, so it was a good spot for that run to be put in it was just tough because the legs were still a little bit tired a little bit sore mm-hmm. went solo um it's kind of rainy so it was a little tough to get motivated but it was one of those that i was very glad to have that in the books yeah um, and at the end of the day I was, I was happy with how it went i was happy with what i saw from the results yeah it's a good yeah. run phil uh the, that sunday was um 30 minutes well ended up being 40 minutes because the little one went with me in the stroller and she put in about a kilometer herself and yeah. flip-flops um, so I, it was impressive. She's chasing down that 1K world record yeah. flip flop. Oh, that's she's she's in the competition. Yeah, and you can't say no when she wants to wants to go run with you. Sure. sure. Um, and then let's see. Monday was slept in. I was lazy Monday morning, but it was raining quite hard. Yeah. Uh, so got in just an easy 30 minutes with uh, some strides at lunch there, and then Tuesday. Tuesday was one that. Looking on the calendar, I was a little afraid of, to be honest. It was 
uh, warm up and then four by eight minutes at half effort with two minute recoveries and then a cool down of 10 minutes or so. I'm more so afraid because that you know, it's a long workout. It's a Steven Siler special, I believe. Um, yeah, he, he does uh, often prescribe the four minute, eight minute, 16 yeah. minute intervals. Yeah. And, and the goal there, you get 32 minutes of total work at half right. marathon pace, which I think is a really nice spot. You know, it's something that potentially we might take up to five reps yep. at some point. But again, knowing what you had come off of, yeah. how the body could still have been a little tender. Yep. I didn't want to press that too hard, but really felt like we're at a, a point where we got to make sure we're getting quality work yep. in. Well, and that that's kind of my was my thought going in that I, the legs were still a little bit fatigued coming off the the long run on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Muscles are a little bit sore. Everything was feeling good, but the muscles were just sore. But at the end of the day, it was a really solid run. I was really happy with how it went. It was the first workout I felt like I really hit strongly. Maybe in a two three weeks or so. Okay. So it was good to have a little bit of confidence from yeah. that, and then. Yesterday was just some weight room stuff, um, no running, which was nice. Uh, and then this morning was just a relatively easy hour. Um, mm-hmm. So good. It's been a, a, a solid week. Fantastic. I'll take it from last Friday. Uh, that was a 60 minute in the morning, 30 minute in the afternoon double. Saturday morning, I had to get out early to had to work Saturday, so I had to get it in early. It was kind of a nasty morning. You mentioned it yeah. rainy that morning. Uh, I had a warm-up plus four by ten minutes progressive with two minutes easy Nice. Uh, in between. Didn't have real expectations on the pace that I was going for. Just thought, well, let's start it off kind of a tempo-type, steady-to-tempo-type effort, just and then just keep rhythm. cutting down. Yeah. And ended up great. Felt great on it. Uh, worked down to, frankly, what I probably is around 10K pace for the last 10-minute interval. Nice. and. I would not expect to be able to run a 10-minute interval at, at 10K, 10K pace, pace yeah. at the end of a workout. But I say it with – I'm happy about that. Normally, I would be nervous that I overdid that. Yeah. But I'm actually happy about it because of how the effort felt. I never felt like I pressed until the very final minute. Nice. With That's one minute feeling. to go, yeah. I saw where I was on the clock and, and how I felt. And I thought, I can drop it down a little more. And so I cut the pace even just a little bit more after that. But – it was great. Uh, then I did a double shakeout, 3.9 miles, 30 minutes that afternoon on dirt. Sunday, it was 8.4 miles in the morning, a little over an hour, and then did a double 26 minutes uh, trails in the afternoon. I was Where'd you go? Visiting family. Yeah, there's a really nice park, probably 10, 15 minutes away, that's got some good trails along the creek. It's it's beautiful. Nice. So I hit that, and let's see. Yeah, Monday morning was a mess, right? The weather was awful. Yeah. We did not... I, I even made a note here. While Boston had beautiful weather, I had repeat of Boston 2018 weather. <laughs> wind, cold, rain. Just got some easy miles. It was, it was actually a dirt trails, but they were just mud. Tuesday followed it up, worked out a session with a few guys. Uh, the Monaghetti Fartlek. Ooh, it was time. That's a fun one. It's good to be back. How'd it go for you? Well, I did it at the same place eight weeks prior with what I would consider a similar or perhaps slightly even more controlled effort. I covered more ground. Nice. I 
have 3.7 miles in 20 minutes. I actually rounded that down because it was closer to 3.75, and I still think my GPS lied to me because I don't think I was moving that quick, so I rounded it down because with the ons and offs, that's like a 5.20 average for the whole thing. Nice. I don't, I'm not that good. So you're getting better. Nah, I'm trying <laughs> 30 minutes on dirt that evening. Got a lot of soft stuff this That's week. Good. That's good for the body. Yeah. yeah. We'll find out. We'll see what the experts think in this article, article here. <laughs> yep. Uh, 70 minutes yesterday morning and then 40 in the, uh, close to 40 in the afternoon with some grass strides. Nice. There you go. Yep. Up at Bob shoes Jones. or no shoes? Uh, that was shoes. That was shoes. Clothes also. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank and the, this morning, uh, got out with uh, Special K, friend of the show. Ah, nice. Long run. Professional pacer. Yes, he is. You can hire him. I will send you his information if you email us, secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. All paces, welcome. That guy loves to pace. <laughs> He'll do it all. Uh, I had 17 and a half miles in about an hour and 50 minutes. That's a 620 average. Nice. I didn't really, I, I think there were two watch checks the entire time. One was, I, I knew I had kind of broken away from Kyle, so we regrouped and got going again on the trail. And then we got to the water fountain, just mm-hmm. to take a quick break, get a drink of water. He immediately took off and said, come catch me. So a little hunt down. <laughs> nice. I gave him probably 90 seconds or so. And I was getting close, but then we got to an, an intersection on the trail, and he stopped because he saw he could have made it, but cars would have stopped me. What uh-huh. a guy. Oh, I mean, how kind, nice right? I probably would have oh. lost everything I had gained. But I checked it at, at, a little after that point, and the average had dropped down to like 6.15 or so, and I thought, ah, I better ease off now. Let's, yeah. let's not waste it here on the trail trying to catch a friend. This is not a race. Just get a good session. But I felt really controlled. It was, it was a good long run. And then uh, I just came from a one-hour yoga power flow Your class. Your is fully evening. aligned. Oh, I don't think if that's exactly the same activity, but yes. Well, thank you. Close enough. It's close <laughs> enough. Oh, uh, Eastern medicine. Okay. That's the last seven days. Now, let's take it to the main course, Phil. You ready? Ah, I'm ready. I've okay. been waiting for this. So, as you said before, one of the limitations of Seiler's previous studies, uh, the use of endurance athletes from across multiple domains. And so, it was really exciting to see the amount of data we have in this research and have it all be run specific. The well, and the, the other thing is, is getting into this, looking at where he got this data yeah, from, I know. is I... really pretty exciting. Yeah. You know, if we think back to, well, back in the dark ages of pre-internet, maybe we'll get into this a little bit more later, but there really wasn't a ton of information about what different folks were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you had different uh, books that would come out about one specific coach's approach or their philosophy, which was... Maybe not totally, truly what they were doing, but you know, now with all the stuff that's available, whether that's through Strava or through some of these different websites, yep. you know, there, there's so much more open information. And I think that has really just in general, beyond this specific science application uh, of these training principles, that has really elevated distance running the past you know, 10, 20 years or so. There's no question. And he had to do a lot. He and the co-authors had to do a lot of work culling through that data, right? It wasn't just easily accessible in every case. They had to do some work. But to know that so much of it you could get online, runnerprogram.com, when you look at the the end notes here, 
Man, they got a lot of good information. <laughs> uh-huh. I clicked some links from there. That's fantastic. Uh, so the data come from detailed training logs and supple- supplemental information from 59 world-class athletes and 16 coaches of what they uh, define as, quote, podium contestants. Athletes referenced in the end notes include, but are definitely not limited to, Joshua Cheptegei, Bob Kennedy, Haile Gebrselesi, uh, Safan Hassan, Craig Mottram, Greta Weitz, Jeffrey Mutai, Elliot Kipchoge, Molly Seidel, Paula Radcliffe, Bill Rogers, the list goes on and yeah. on. And then it's Nick- all over the world. Yeah, exactly. All over the world at the best of the best at these uh, multiple events. And we'll talk about how they're divided in a moment. And then you have Nick Badeau, Renato Canova, Igloy, V. Hill. They're among the coaches studied. An important consideration the authors note is this is, quote, results proven practice. Mm-hmm. And that should not necessarily be considered synonymous with and interchangeable with, quote, best practice. Yep. It's what the best are doing in practice that doesn't tell you it's absolutely without fail the best way to train. Yeah. It's important distinction. Well, this whole training thing is a learning process. And he makes the quote in the article that, you know, so often the scientists and the researchers are, yeah. you know, following the coaches. They're catching and they're, up, right? They're figuring out what the coaches are doing that's working versus necessarily driving the train of this is what we need to be doing. And this this really goes back into, you know, with the late 60s, early 70s, when the guys at Ball State would bring in, mm-hmm. you know, Frank Shorter, Bill Rogers, and take them through lactate threshold testing, VO2 max testing, and, you know, figure out what it was about those guys that made them special rather than dictating what those guys should be doing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an, an important point to make is that you really the, the, the coaches and the athletes themselves are figuring out what works for them. And the scientists are just trying to answer the question why. Yeah. So let me read that quote for you. Yeah. Most positive developments in modern long distance training have often been driven by experienced coaches and athletes rather than sports scientists. And so to me... That reinforces the importance of individualizing, knowing an athlete's strengths and weaknesses, trusting some degree of intuition, and not being completely consumed by the science. Uh, The runners here are subdivided into two classes. We have long-distance track athletes, what we might call 5K and 10K types, and marathon specialists. And so we'll talk about what's the same and different for those two groups. But the big question is, all right, what are the key takeaways? And you and I might have some to add, but let's begin with what the authors emphasize. These are their biggest conclusions. One, frequency as number of sessions per week is between 11 and 14 Mm -hmm. runs for both subclasses. Yep. Well, I think that's a huge point as well. We'll probably get into it later in terms of what they talked about as these runners were coming in, building back up to their training, coming off of a break Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. But the importance of that frequent dosage of training is tremendous. And there's an assertion here that perhaps frequency is high because of the comparison to the other endurance sports. Yeah. They don't have... The pounding. Yep. They don't have the impact forces on the body. And so perhaps more frequency allows you to achieve similar results in running. Yeah. Well, to me, it's not from a clinical perspective. It's not just the 
pounding and the those uh, ground forces. It's also that you know the comparisons are often made to whether it's swimming or cycling or cross country skiing, uh, but with running, it's such a eccentrically dominant movement, mm-hmm. and that those muscles are being loaded as they lengthen, whereas with these other sports, it's primarily a concentric movement. Yeah. So the, as the muscles contract, they're shortening, which that eccentric contraction contributes to you know issues of muscle soreness, muscle damage, uh, increased tendon load, which makes running a little bit more stressful than you know a lot of these other comparable endurance sports. It's a great point, Phil. I'm glad you added that. It's better than the point I made about it, so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So what you have here with frequency is typically doubling with the exception of not on the longest days and some of these folks taking an entire day off each week. Yeah. So they're not all running every day. So there's frequency. Key takeaway number two, volume. Yep. As kilometers per week in the heart of preparation, it's 160 to 220 kilometers per week for marathoners and 130 to 190 for the track runners. Those translate to... What's that in freedom units? (laughs) (laughs) 100 to 135 miles per Mm -hmm. week and 80 to 120 miles per week, respectively, for the marathoner and the track athlete. Yep. Okay. Next, the mean number of races per year. The marathon group, six. Mm Mm-hmm. I would emphasize these are not all marathons. Yep. Most well, of them are running two. They get into it where it's what, one to three marathons a year, but the, yes. the rest are shorter races. Yes. Interesting note to that that they pointed out that uh, the mean was just one half marathon yeah. and actually more shorter yep. races that they're probably using as some type of workout stimulus. Yep. Yeah. So maybe they're doing more 10K, 5K on, in racing situations than they are half marathons in prep, which is a, a very common tool we use, particularly in the West, yeah. to use a half in the buildup yep. towards a marathon. Well, it, the difference there, I think, is that particularly for maybe the age group runner, the half marathon is a good workout in terms of a a training cycle. But also I think that's often used as a benchmark Mm -hmm. of, you know, where might our marathon performance be or where's a realistic target. Whereas, you know, these guys aren't questioning that necessarily. They're there to race and they're there to win championships. Yeah. Um, So they're treating that race, those 5K, 10K races more as workouts and sharpening tools versus trying to figure out you know, can I run X pace for my upcoming event? That's right. Elliot Kipchoge doesn't need benchmarks. Right. And he stated it publicly. There's no point. He's getting ready for one big race. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to do the work to prepare him to be the best he can be for that race. But the average runner may look at that differently. Yeah. Uh, the 5K, 10K types, uh, their mean number of races per year is nine. It makes sense that they would have more. Yep. 80% or more of, let me quote this directly, total running distance is performed at low intensity. Well, let's back up. Let's get back the to the year. racing first. Oh, I'm sorry. So so the other thing that stood out to me with the, the races for the 5K, 10K was that they pointed out that none of their racing outside of the championship events was longer than their 5k 10k yeah that's great so these was, guys aren't going over distance i was going to bring that up later but ah. of course you just took command of the show because it's your <laughs> show that it's a, it's a great point though Phil. Mm. you're exactly right they're not over distance racing right which is a separate enterprise from over distance training right to prepare for these 5k 10k races anecdotally 
when we think about the athletes we put on that list, uh, those that are in the track group, we probably knew that to be true from right. watching their careers yep. or uh, both the current and the past runners. But it is an interesting point because if I were building to a 5K, one, I don't want to run a 5K every weekend right. in preparation. But two, I would have no problem running a 10K right. or a 15K, mm -hmm. not close to that target race, but in the build earlier. Yeah. But again, it's probably being used as some measure of, say, where my threshold mm -hmm. is. You know, it's it's more of a benchmark thing, and they're not worried about right. that. Well, and as well, I think too, it's probably you know, as we're doing it, it's oh, that'd be a fun race to do. Let's go do sure. that. I'm fit. You know, my target maybe this 5K in you know 12 weeks, but you know, here's a fun race that's local that I'd like to go do. Whereas these guys don't care about that. Like they're they're racing to win championships. They're racing because they're professionals. And therein lies another lesson from them. Yeah. We have to balance how many times we want to just go have fun versus what our big goals are. It's the discussion you and I have had on this program about how many times you're going to go up Paris Mountain. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's the same principle. Yep. Yeah. I'll go back then to reemphasize 80% or more of total running distance is performed at low intensity throughout the year. Total running distance, not number of sessions. Mm -hmm. If we're going to add up all the running they did and measure that in either kilometers or mileage, whatever you're using, 80% or more of that is low intensity. Yep. So that's 80 miles a week. Or easy more running. for these yeah. uh, marathoners. And, and it's silly how easy that is too. They're, yeah. You know, they're going two, three minutes slower than their goal marathon pace. That's right. Another key conclusion that they made race pace running increases as the target competition nears that's something we can all apply yep uh, we move to more specific as we near the biggest race on your calendar and then tapering i find this one really fascinating we'll come back to it more later yeah. but but just briefly this process begins seven to ten days before the target competition and the athletes who do not live at altitude often spend two weeks to a month at altitude immediately prior to the tapering period. Okay. Those are the biggest conclusions that the authors yep. assert from these findings. And I think there's a lot of great value there yep. to dive into. But Phil, do you have any others that you immediately gleaned and, and want to get into a little bit more. And no. let, let me say this before you, if you do, I do want to also interject. I'm sorry to ask you a question, then immediately take it back <laughs> off topic. I, but it's important to interject that the authors admit some limitations to yep. the study. One being the male dominance in the training logs yep. they examined, as well as the lack of common language around intensity zones. Yep. Uh, we'll Talk well, about we've that had more. episodes on that as well, just yeah. with talking just about lactate threshold like we did, what, 10 episodes ago or so. That's right. Those multi-zone models, yeah. they're not all cohesive, and we'll dig into that more. And then the last one, moreover, what role does drug doping play? Mm -hmm. It's impossible to be certain, but we know it has huge impacts, not just on performance, yeah. but maybe just as significantly on recovery. Yep. And we know people well, probably are... more so on recovery. Right. And... We know people are getting caught for it, yep. so we know it's happening. Yeah. We know, speaking of burritos you brought up earlier, <laughs> tainted burritos uh -huh. are supposedly being eaten and whatever else. 
So yes, those are the admitted limitations of this study to take that for what it's worth. Do you have any other big ones you want to add? Uh, because I have a, I have a few. No, I, I think that's really the, the key takeaways. You know, I think a few of those things we'll get into a little bit more as we get a little bit further into the article. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to add just a few things from that uh, before we maybe unpack some of the training methods more and, and the intensity distributions. One is a quote, most world-class long distance runners engage in systematic training for eight to 10 years prior to reaching a high international standard. It takes time yep. for all of us. They are great at an early age, but they're not at this international standard until on average eight to 10 years of systematic mm -hmm. training. So here's here's where I think the next steps on the study are, because uh, when you read a paper like this, it's like, you know, it answers a lot of good questions, but it always raises more. Yeah, I got some of those too. Would be, you know, let's look at the guys that, you know, are marathoners that they're breaking down in this, but how does what they're doing now compared to when they were 5K, 10K runners? Yeah. You know, how has their training changed as they have changed events? that evolution over time? Yeah. yeah. And that move to the marathon is different than it used to be. Right. So many of us go to it earlier or so many of us are good at it later yeah. in life now than, than folks used to be. I had a conversation with one of our athletes just this earlier this week. We talked about a goal and it was set up as a, I want this time in this event by this date. And to me, this just reinforces this eight to 10 year time frame yeah, these guys are on. Yeah. Drop the date part of it and keep the first two yeah. in pushing your goal. Don't well, set an arbitrary limit on it. I know you want to get to Boston, Phil, yeah. but forcing it and trying to do it this race affects the way you train well, and your it, ability to build and get there. And, and you mentioned the uh, the book that Matt Fitzgerald and Ben Rosario are coming out with. And that podcast with uh, Mario Fraioli what they talked about kind of comes down to that was that, you know, Fitzgerald came into that group saying, I, I want to run X time at this race. And they had the conversation that the difference in the guys that are professional, you know, they don't really care about a time. I'm sure they do, but that's not the, the main driver. Yeah. Their driver is, I want to see how good I can be. That is And so that's right. not the, you know, I want to run X time. Yeah. It. In 12 weeks, it's, you know, this is what I'm passionate about. Let's, see what I can do. Next big one that I saw is good news for everyone. Running economy keeps developing over time with practice. Direct quote, accumulated volume of low intensity running seems to be a characteristic of those with better running economy. Mm -hmm. So even as we age and other variables may stagnate or perhaps fade, we can continue to improve that one. Yep. And that's very encouraging for all of you to just keep at it. Yeah. We can, over time with consistency, improve a variable that the authors note is one of the three most significant variables yeah. in becoming a better actual runner. Yep. They're measuring VO2 max, fractional utilization of VO2 max, meaning how close to that maximum oxygen uptake can you hold mm -hmm. that pace so it's often associated with threshold type right. stuff and then running economy yep. energy cost of any submaximal activity those are the three big drivers of how good you can be yeah. and one of them continues to improve throughout your lifetime well that's huge to me that that also emphasizes and we've talked about this before that you know running isn't something that we do just for the cardiovascular fitness mm. but it, it the movement is something that we're continually 
training. Yeah. Um, and that we're just practicing those movement patterns, practicing it becoming more efficient. Just going out and running easy helps to make that more efficient. But also things like drills, things like strides continue to mm-hmm. make us uh, well, make us improve that running economy. Last big one that I'll add is there's a note of transition periods of at least one to two weeks and up to four weeks after a big race Mm -hmm. with some runners taking the entire time off. Let your body rest and recover after a command performance. Play the long game. It's so easy to get swept up into, man, it went well. I got to jump back in. I'm having fun. Keep getting better. Or, man, I stunk last time out. I got to get right back at it and get better. No, that's not what these guys do. (laughs) It's not what they do. And so those are really big takeaways to me. I also have some big questions. We'll come back to those at the end. And we're going to pause right there and split this discussion into two episodes. Phil and I spent more time considering the specific training methods and training intensities analyzed in the study, as well as tapering, questions raised for the future of training, and perhaps most importantly to you, other ways you can apply this research to your training. We'll bring all of that to you next time on Mile 115 of Seconds Flat.